Hey, it's Danny Stover, and I want to introduce you to a new one-of-a-kind true crime podcast that I think you'll love. It's called Uncharted, Crime and Mayhem in the Music Industry, and it's hosted by the one and only Alan Cross, an award-winning music historian and host of the chart-topping ongoing history of new music. On this podcast, Alan takes you inside the unbelievable stories of murder, plane crashes, court battles, and even run-ins with the mob. In this podcast, you'll hear all about the dark side of the world of music. They're releasing new episodes every two weeks, so search for and follow Uncharted Crime and Mayhem in the music industry wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoy this sneak peek. If there's money to be made, chances are organized crime will want a piece of it. Call it the mob, the mafia, the Costa Nostra, or the sting of ours. These groups, these families, are close to the action in some way. Construction, drugs, alcohol, prostitution, protection rackets, gambling, loan sharking, tax fraud, stock manipulation, corruption of public officials, porn. You name it, and there's a boss and a family that's looking for a taste, if not outright control. One thing that I didn't include on that list is the entertainment industry. I mean, just look at these stories involving Vegas and Atlantic City, stories about movies and studios, and mobsters who were fans of music. The mob has been involved in music almost since the beginning. As soon as crime families began to evolve, consolidate, and exercise power in the late 1800s, hooks were put into performers, composers, venues, and later record labels. Money came from shakedowns, skims, theft of copyright, counterfeiting, and fraudulent bookkeeping. Businesses, careers, and lives were ruined. People got hurt, and some people died. I'm Alan Cross, and have I got some stories for you. This is Uncharted, Crime and Mayhem in the Music Industry, Episode 3. It's music and the mob. For decades, music and the mob went together. Depending on what kind of performer you were, which city you were in, where you played, and what record label you signed to, there was a very good chance that some good fellows were involved in some way. Mob rule in the music industry reached a peak in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And some of these stories are absolutely insane. The mob really started to get into the music business during the jazz age in the 1920s. This was the era of prohibition, and shady elements were only too happy to not only supply booze, but to run the nightclubs that served it. And if you're going to have a club, you're going to need musicians to provide the entertainment. The Matranga crime family, an offshoot of a gang out of Sicily, were among the first to get into this business. They ran a club called Matrangas in the Black Storyville area of New Orleans. Louis Armstrong played there and knew that the club's operators were connected. But they provided protection for their performers while also skimming whatever profits they could. The nightclubs were used to launder money from other operations. Hooking into jazz musicians allowed them to franchise their way to other cities. From Chicago and New York, they branched out to St. Louis, Kansas City, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Denver, and eventually the West Coast. Money was regularly sent to the boys back home. There was Cuban Gardens in Kansas City, the Plantation in St. Louis, 
Atlantic City had the 500 Club, and New York had the Cotton Club. There was the Midnight Ranch in Denver and the Sunset Cafe in Chicago. Oh, speaking of which, at one point, Al Capone ran five clubs in Chicago. One of his star entertainers was Earl Father Hines, a pianist who had been playing at the Grand Terrace on the South Side for years. He was so popular that he had a national radio show. The Grand Terrace was where a lot of mobsters hung out and discussed business. Father Hines knew to keep his mouth shut. He got a steady paycheck, even though he had to kick back some of his earnings. Later, he'd say that all the big names of the day, Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Billy Holiday, Nat King Cole, Count Basie, Dizzy Gillespie, Tony Bennett, everyone, had some kind of association with mobsters, whether they wanted to or not. Jelly Roll Morton had to kick some of his earnings up to an organization known as The Syndicate. And this brings us to Frank Sinatra. Think back to the opening half hour of The Godfather from 1972. Don Corleone is at his daughter's wedding, but has retired to his office to meet with people seeking favor. One of them is Johnny Fontaine, a singer and one of Don Corleone's godsons. Fontaine is an old-time crooner played by real singer El Martino. He's discouraged because his career is on the skids, and he's hoping that the Don can help him secure a part in a movie that will turn things around for him. For that to happen, a certain movie producer needs to be convinced that Johnny is right for the role. Long story short, Johnny gets the part, but only after the producer finds a horse's head in his bed. Mario Puzo, the author of The Godfather, loosely based the Johnny Fontaine character on a couple of people, including Martino himself, who was said to have been beaten to a pulp when he tried to get more appearance money from a nightclub run by the mob. But chances are Puzo was probably thinking mostly of Frank Sinatra. The story is that Sinatra got help from the mob to get the role of Maggio in the 1953 film From Here to Eternity, the job he needed bad because by the early 50s, Sinatra wasn't doing so well. Sinatra was mobbed up from birth. His uncle, Bob Garavante, was a member of the Genovese family. His parents ran a mob-approved speakeasy during Prohibition in the 1920s. When Frank started singing at age 15, he ended up performing in mob-run nightclubs and casinos. And when there was a wedding, they called Frankie. Sinatra would never confirm any connections to the mob, but it was always there in the background of his life. Early on, Willie Moretti, part of the Genovese's, helped Sinatra get work throughout New Jersey. This led to a contract with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra in 1939. In 1941, Frank wanted a better deal, more money from Dorsey, but Dorsey refused. Dorsey soon found himself face-to-face with Moretti, who stuck a gun in his mouth. Frank was mysteriously released from his contract for the grand total of $1. That's another Godfather scene, too. Remember where Luca Brazzi put a gun to that bandleader's head? After he was a free agent, the Genovese's put up $50,000 to help Frank establish himself. Frank didn't end up serving in World War II, either. Rumor is that someone paid a doctor $40,000 to declare him unfit for service, something about a punctured eardrum. Later, when Frank and the Rat Pack ran Las Vegas, he socialized with gangsters like Bugsy Siegel, Sam Giancana, Johnny Roselli, Angela Bruno, and Lucky Luciano. Some really shady stuff went on. Wise guys were everywhere. 
Frank personally knew people who had delivered the union votes that helped JFK become president in 1960, and perhaps the mobsters who had JFK assassinated in 1963. He knew the mobsters that tried to assassinate Fidel Castro. And when Frank had to deal with the criminals who kidnapped his son, Frankie Jr., in 1963, who did he call? His made buddies. J. Edgar Hoover had a massive FBI file on Sinatra that ran 1,275 pages. But despite all the investigations and accusations, no charges were ever brought against him. As one author put it, Sinatra was not a made man, but the mob made him. And it wasn't just individual performers that interested the mob. Anything that offered a steady revenue was fair game. And if the revenue was all cash, even the better. Which leads us to the shadowy world of jukeboxes beginning in the late 1930s. Jukeboxes were a perfect mob hustle. Every restaurant and bar had one. It was a cash business and each jukebox led back to something bigger. In the 30s and 40s, the biggest jukebox manufacturer was Wurlitzer. Meyer Lansky, one of the biggest mafia dons of all time, owned a company that placed jukeboxes across New York City. Bars, restaurants, pool halls, everywhere. It's said that he controlled every single jukebox in the New York City region. Normally, jukebox vendors split revenues with the venue 50-50, but not with Meyer Lansky. He also owned a record company that supplied records for the machines. Some of those labels were legit, or at least had the trappings of a legit business, while others just produced bootlegs of proper records. That meant every cent from Lansky's jukeboxes went to his organization. Not real labels, not the performers, not the composers. It was pure profit every step of the way, a nickel at a time. The outfit, based in Chicago, also had interests in jukeboxes. Wurlitzer knew what was going on, but professed to be powerless to stop it, even though the mob was instrumental in getting their machines into more and more places. The outfit had a guy named Fred Jukebox Smitty Smith, who had the title of Head of the Jukebox Division of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 134. He had an underling named Mike Dale, who was the owner of Commercial Phonography Survey, which charged huge fees to establishments that wanted to host a jukebox. If an establishment refused to pay, he could expect a visit from some goons with baseball bats, cans of gasoline, and matches. Thousands of machines were involved. In the 1950s, Chicago alone had 10,000 jukeboxes in operation, and Jukebox Smitty orchestrated the shakedowns that made him and his people very rich. It was straight-up extortion. Milton J. Hammergren, a vice president of Wurlitzer, testified before Congress about the situation and intimated that some people may have been killed over the placement of jukeboxes. One such murder involved Johnny Kowalski in 1945, a Chicago operator of jukeboxes who ran afoul of the revenue splits. Mobsters also owned sketchy record pressing plants. They would just make copies, counterfeits, of legitimate releases and use them to stock both their jukeboxes with new recordings and to sell these records at ridiculously low prices, undercutting the legitimate market. A mobster named Charles Smith controlled a lot of those companies. In the 1960s, Smith flipped and spilled his guts on the venture to the FBI. The outfit had some close connections to Jules Stein, 
He was the founder of the Music Corporation of America, otherwise known as MCA, which was founded in 1924. MCA would later turn into a major entertainment giant, eventually begatting companies like NBC Universal and Universal Music Group. There's a complicated story here that links MCA to Meyer Lansky, a mob fixer in LA named Cindy Koshak, and money funneled from all the entertainment venues to the mafia. Meanwhile, it's alleged that some of the dark money helped propel Ronald Reagan from being a B-grade Hollywood actor to President of the United States. This brings us to Morris Levy, the most notorious indie record label owner in history. If you're a fan of The Sopranos, the character of Hesh Rabin was based on Levy. His story is one of crime, corruption, exploitation, and mob legends. Stick around. This episode of Uncharted looks at music and the mob, and this story cannot be told without speaking of Morris Levy. Levy was born in Harlem in 1927. By his early teens, he was hanging around nightclubs. Eventually, he found some investors to help him open a couple of clubs in New York City, including the famous Birdland, a jazz club that attracted some of the best players of all time. This is where Levy learned about all the different revenue streams that came from music, especially the money to be made from owning the copyrights on songs. He established a publishing company called Patricia Music, which acquired the rights to a lot of music played in his clubs. How he did that wasn't entirely legal. The next thing to do was to create a record label. Levy and his partner George Goldner formed Roulette Records to capitalize on this new trend of rock and roll. He got close to Alan Freed, the famous New York DJ who popularized the term rock and roll. And together with Freed, Levy tried to claim the rights to that term so that anytime anyone said rock and roll, they would have to pay Levy. He made some money shaking down record labels for a while, but then the federal government stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. That's, that's a generic term. Rock and roll belongs to everybody. Stop it. So while that didn't work, the acquisition rights to songs did. If you signed to Roulette Records, you had to give songwriting credit to Levy, which meant that even though he had nothing to do with the creation of the song, he got paid as a writer, even before the performer or the legitimate composer. Black R&B performers were exploited the most, although Levy's control extended everywhere. Meanwhile, Levy and his cronies introduced the idea of payola into rock and roll radio. Disc jockeys were bribed, money, drugs, women, cars, whatever it took, to play Levy's records on their shows. This started in about the middle 1950s and continued unabated until the Fed stepped in in the early 1960s and tried to stamp out the practice. As we'll see, that did not work. Levy was big, 6'3", maybe 250 pounds, with hands the size of catcher's mitts. And he gave off the vibes that you just did not mess with him, or else. Plus, it was well known that if you mess with Levy, you messed with the Genovese family, specifically boss Vincent the Chin Gigante, acting boss Tommy Eboli, and associate Fat Tony Salerno. At one point, Levy owned more than 90 companies that employed close to 1,000 people. There were labels, clubs, record-pressing plants, tape-duplicating factories, music distribution companies, and even a chain of record stores called Strawberries. 
These stores often sold counterfeit copies of legitimate records at a discount, cheating labels and artists out of their royalties. When the actual labels complained, Levy would say, Sure, no problem. I can get these records out of the stores, but it's going to cost you. And knowing that Levy was mobbed up, the labels had no choice but to pay. Meanwhile, roulette was used to create and maintain illegal bank accounts used for laundering mob money. No wonder Levy was nicknamed the Octopus. Levy was so powerful that in addition to the five families of New York, Gambino, Genovese, Colombo, Lucchese, and Bonanon, Levy's roulette family was considered by some as the sixth family of New York. He was actually called the godfather of the music business. He had his hooks into dozens of artists. Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers had hits for one of Morris Levy's labels like this one, and they were paid $1,000. Meanwhile, the record sold 3 million copies. And Levy pocketed the lion's share of the royalties. Lyman would end up dead at the age of 25 as the result of a heroin overdose. Jimmy Rogers had a hit with this song in 1957. But when he started asking questions about the money he was earning from the song, someone arranged to have him nearly beaten to death alongside a freeway in California. Same thing happened with a guy in New Jersey who dared bootleg some of Morris's records. The message was very clear. Question Morris and face the consequences. One guy who really suffered under Levy for years was Tommy James. He was a desperate teenage father from Dayton, Ohio, who showed potential with a song called Hanky Panky. My baby does the hanky panky. The song was peddled to a variety of labels, but nobody seemed to be interested. Except Morris Levy. He signed James and then put the word out. Touch this kid, and it's the last thing you'll do. Hanky Panky sold 80,000 copies in its first 10 days on roulette. When he later asked about royalties, he was told that if he set foot in the roulette offices ever again, he would be killed. Best you just focus on making music, kid. And when James did become a worldwide superstar, 23 chart singles, nine gold and platinum albums, his songs covered dozens of times, and in 1968, he sold more records than the Beatles. How much money did he make? Almost nothing. By the time he escaped Levy's clutches, he estimates that he was cheated out of between 30 and $40 million from songs like this. In 1971, a war broke out between the families of New York. Some of Levy's associates ended up being beaten or killed. Tommy James was quietly told to get out of town, lest he be dragged into something. He moved to Nashville, then Europe, and even then, James found his songs being covered by other artists. Tiffany, Billy Idol, R.E.M., Joan Jett, Dolly Parton, 
Bruce Springsteen, Culture Club, Cher, Weezer, and many more. And did he get paid for those covers? No. But Levy did not stop. He founded Sugar Hill Records, the pioneering rap label that gave us Grandmaster Flash. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the... Very important song in the history of rap and hip-hop. Did Flash get what he was owed? Not a chance. Morris Levy took most of the money. Then there was the time Levy took on John Lennon and Paul McCartney. The trouble began with the 1969 Beatles song Come Together from the Abbey Road album. There's a line in the song written by Lennon that goes, Here comes old flat top. In 1973, Levy claimed that that line infringed on a 1956 Chuck Berry song called You Can't Catch Me, a song in which Levy had a copyright interest as its publisher. That song features the line, Here Comes a Flat Top. Levy demanded compensation, a piece of the Beatles song. Lennon refused, and the case headed for court. There were suits and countersuits, and even Levy issued bootlegs of demos John Lennon had made for an album. In the end, though, Lennon made it all go away by agreeing to record three of Levy's songs for a 1975 album called Rock and Roll. Because it was a John Lennon record, it sold well. It went gold in several countries. And Levy pocketed his share of the royalties, courtesy of John Lennon. Now, Levy did have to pay $400,000 in damages, but the sales of Lennon's album more than made up for it. Levy controlled a number of record labels beyond roulette. In 1976, he created Tiger Lily Records, which issued up to 60 records a year, mostly from total unknowns, and artists that were deliberately signed to lose money. Why would he do that? Because it became a tax scam for investors. People may have died, too. In 1980, Nate McCullough, a former bodyguard for Levy, was murdered. Who was behind that? There are suspicions that point back at Levy. Levy was finally charged with racketeering in 1986 after a three-and-a-half-year investigation into the effects of organized crime on the music industry. He was indicted with 17 other people on 117 counts and sentenced to 10 years in jail. He sold roulette records and all his other holdings for about $70 million. It was only then that many of the artists signed to the label, Tommy James included, saw their first-ever royalty checks. And two months before he was to report to prison, Morris Levy died of colon cancer on May 21st, 1990. He was 62. In a moment, we'll move from Morris Levy to The Network and how the mob tried to control music through the 80s. Welcome back to this episode of Uncharted, and we're looking back on the mob's connection to the music industry. And this is where we get back to payola, the pay-for-play practice involving records and radio stations. Now, before I go any further, I must say that in over 40 years in the Canadian radio and music industry, I have never, ever seen anything close to payola being practiced in Canada. And believe me, I've held jobs where I would have been a target for such things, but nope, not once, not ever. 
But in the US, that's an entirely different story. And this is where we run into the network. There's a lot of competition when it comes to getting a song on the radio. And sometimes wheels need to get greased. This is illegal. You cannot pay someone to push someone's record on the radio. Because normally, the more airplay a radio gets, the higher it goes up the charts, and that generates more sales and money. Payola was a big, big problem in the 1950s. There was a government investigation in 1959 that snared Alan Freed and others. From that point on, any decisions about what made it on air moved from the DJ to program directors and music directors. So, no more walking into the studio after hours with a new record attached to a bag of money and some blow or maybe a fur coat for the wife or girlfriend. Morris Levy was all over Payola. He paid DJs and radio stations to push his records. If it wasn't cash, it was drugs, gifts, vacations, you name it. In the early days, he paid people directly. After 1959, he and others found ways around it. It wasn't technically illegal if a record label hired a third party to push records by whatever means necessary. And this led to the growth of the independent record promoter. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to that subject in a few minutes. First, we have to look at another Music and the Mob connection. The once common practice of using something called cutouts to defraud record stores and the public. This is where we meet Salvatore Pisello, known as Sal the Swindler, who was associated with the Gambinos and had a reputation for racketeering. Somehow, he ingratiated himself into MCA records. There were stories that some good fellows made this happen after they did a favor for MCA when the company was in trouble. Sal didn't have an office, nor was he paid a salary. Instead, he was in charge of cutouts. These are old releases that were either languishing unsold in warehouses, deleted releases, or albums returned unsold by record labels. And they were easy to pick out because they were marked by cutting off one of the corners of the album jacket or sawing a one-inch cut in one corner. Sal's job was to sell these records at a discount to record stores and other retailers. The key is that the artists who had cut out records didn't have to be paid. Potential buyers offered sealed bids on boxes of these records. The highest bidder won. It didn't matter if the cutout was sold for a dollar or ten cents. It was pure profit back to MCA. By 1983, there were 10 million cutouts sitting in MCA warehouses looking to be sold. So how did Sal the Swindler make his money? MCA apparently offered him loans and advances. Pacello repaid the money, up to a quarter million dollars, with checks. But those checks bounced, so MCA just wrote off the losses and Sal kept the money. Sometimes he'd outright stiff MCA, like the time he reneged on a deal involving mats for breakdancing and something to do with a Latin record label. Pacello was contacted by Joe Lamonte, a guy who served time for bootlegging records. He bought 4.2 million albums and cassettes from Sal for $1.3 million in off-the-books cash payments. And the guarantor for that purchase? Morris Levy. 60 tractor trailers soon arrived at Lamonte's warehouse, but some 600,000 records that Lamonte believed he purchased were missing. Turns out that Sal had sold them to one of Lamonte's competitors. Levy demanded Lamonte pay the full amount anyway. He was soon visited by a group known as the Board of Directors, including Rocco the Butcher and Gatano the Galoot. A wiretap conversation captured the Galoot saying that they were dispatched to put Lamonte in a bucket. Lamonte ended up with a broken jaw, a crushed eye socket, and serious damage to his sinus cavities. 
And surprise, Lamonti turned informant and entered the witness protection program. Sal the Swindler was fired from MCA. And this is where Morris Levy was indicted on those extortion charges that we talked about earlier. The MCA cutout scam opened the doors to another government investigation involving old-school payola. And again, we have to talk about the network. The network was a third-party independent record promotion organization that offered labels a surefire way to get new songs on the radio. But for a price, of course. There were six guys at the center of this. Fred DiCepio, Joe Isgro, Dennis Laventhal, Gary Bird, Jerry Brenner, and Jerry Myers. They divided the U.S. into territories and were responsible for doing business with the most influential radio stations in those areas. Basically, indie promoters like The Network paid radio stations to force-feed the public specific songs. And if the songs took off, which they often did when they ended up on the radio, the money flowed. They received up to $80 million a year to push their product. This type of promotion distorted radio airplay, pushing promising artists out of contention, warping chart performance, and ultimately boosting the sales of payola-driven records. Joe Isgro worked for Morris Levy as National Director of Promotion at Roulette Records starting in 1974. He then moved on to Motown and EMI Records. And then in 1979 came his own company, Isgro Enterprises. Clients included the labels for The Rolling Stones, Michael Jackson, Culture Club, Bruce Springsteen, Supertramp, Phil Collins, Rod Stewart, U2, David Bowie, Elton John, Madonna, George Michael, and many others. Isgro helped get airplay for all of them. Getting a song on the playlist of an influential radio station triggered one fee. The bigger and more influential the radio station, the higher the fee. $500, $1,000, $3,000. Boosted airplay triggered another fee. And the more successful the song became, the more money was paid out. It said that Isgro himself was bringing in $5 million a year in the early 80s. In January 1986, an undercover agent working for the New York State Organized Crime Task Force ran into another undercover agent from the FBI. This guy had been tailing mob boss John Gotti, and he had a meeting with network members Fred DiCipio and Joe Isgro at the Helmsley Place Hotel in New York City. At the same time, an NBC camera crew happened to be following DiCipio as well, and the result was an NBC News scoop. On special segment tonight, the new payola, a sour note that is tainting the rock music business once again. It was back in the 1950s that payola became a way of life in this industry, record companies and promoters paying off disc jockeys to plug new releases and to boost sales. Today, the practice appears to be back with a group of independent promoters playing a major role, and federal authorities are investigating a possible mafia connection. NBC's investigative reporter Brian Ross has additional details. This block on First Avenue on the Lower East Side of New York is a stronghold of the Gambino Mafia family. According to the FBI and New York City Police, the Mafia capo who runs things on this block and in places far from this block is Joseph Armone, the man with the glasses, a convicted heroin dealer who on most days can be found conducting mob business at a back table in this pastry shop. For months now, the activities of Armon and others have been watched closely by the FBI and police as far away as Los Angeles, as part of an investigation of corrupt practices in the rock music business and what appears to be the re-emergence of payola at rock music radio stations. Hell, hell, rock and roll! 
This was the Waldorf Astoria last month at a black tie celebrity dinner to honor some of the early stars of rock and roll. And among the guests, two of the most powerful and feared men in the rock music business, Joseph Isgro, who authorities say has described Mafia Capo Armone as his partner, and Isgro's close associate, Fred DiCipio, who rarely does business without his associate, Mike, by his side. DiCipio and Isgro, each with his own company, are top men in what is called the network. About 30 men, many at this dinner, all known as independent record promoters, who industry executives say are getting millions of dollars a year from record companies to make sure that certain new songs become hits on certain rock music radio stations. After that report, it all blew up. Record labels ran away from indie promoters as fast as they could. Joe Isgro and two other defendants were charged with 57 counts of offenses related to payola. However, nobody went to jail. There was a screw-up by prosecutors. But it was enough to drive this sort of independent record promotion a little more underground. But it was not stamped out. I once met a DJ for a Florida radio station who later up drugged and tossed into a ditch for not playing along with some sort of independent record promotion scheme. After the court case ended, Isgro was free to go about his business. He created his own record label and signed funk star Rick James. He got into producing movies, including a biopic on mob-connected union guy Jimmy Hoffa that starred Jack Nicholson. In 2000, he was arrested in Beverly Hills on loan sharking charges and sentenced to three years in prison. Joe Isgro was indicted again in 2014 on gambling charges. During that trial, he was accused of being a soldier in the Gambino crime family, something that he denied. And as for the network, no major promoter or radio programmer was ever convicted. No payola charges, no tax evasion problems. Paid independent record promotion continues today. It is rampant in the U.S. music industry. And within certain parameters, and if promoters and stations follow certain rules, loopholes really, no one is breaking the law. Is the mob involved in some cases? Don't know, but if history has taught us anything, never say never. Anyone who knows anything about the American entertainment industry will know that the mob figures prominently in its history. If there was an angle that involved making money, the boys in the back room of the pork store, strip club, or pastry restaurant figured out a way to get their juice. The law makes it very difficult for people like Morris Levy to exist anymore, but you can bet that there are wise guys that still have their hooks into performers and into the music industry. They're just more careful about how they do business. First rule, don't talk about it. Keep a low profile. Second rule, see rule number one. If you have any questions or comments, shoot me an email, alan at alancross.ca. We can also meet up on all the social media sites along with my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated with music news and recommendations every day. And there's the free daily newsletter you should get. Join me for more stories of crime and mayhem in the world of music. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.